following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, for this morning, though, I figured that, so this is, as Donovan said, it's our last morning service before the end of the year, so I figured we should probably look at the Christmas story. That's kind of, that's what you do. Just spare a thought for pastors every year at this time of year. Like, we're always coming back to the story, and it's like, what's new? What's new at Christmas time? You know, it's the same old story. Although I have, I have to say this year, I've been surprised, just nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning, but just reading through the Christmas story again, the nativity story, and just amazed by the little details that you sometimes haven't seen before. Has anyone else? Like you know, stories, yeah, the Gospels, the passages that a lot of you I know have read a lot of times. And then there's just things this year that are just little things that have just stood out to me. Just little details. I've never, never seen that before or never seen it that way or never seen that, how this connects to that. And that's the beauty of reading these stories a lot. Like in one way, yeah, it's familiar and it's, you know, here we go again. In another way, I do believe God's always got new things to show us. He's always got new light to break forth from his word. And so believe that with the Christmas story. Don't come to this thinking that, ah, oh, there's nothing new here seen this before, heard this a million times, believe that God's always got something new to show you. There's always fresh, um, there's always fresh insight that we can gain and be transformed by, right? Okay, all right, you're a bit tired this morning, aren't you? You're going to have to work and work hard for this. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown or their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. All right. These days, uh, the town of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, is in the West Bank, which is in Palestine, in Palestinian territories, which, of course, at the moment is all caught up in the Israel-Hamas war that's going on. I've been to Bethlehem twice, and the center of Bethlehem is, today is a place called Manger Square, conveniently named, and roads leading into Manger Square are roads like Nativity Road and Star Place, 
This is for real. Uh, in Manger Square, every year they have a big Christmas tree that's um, lit up. You can see it there. Uh, because even though it, it is a largely Muslim population, but there are a lot of Christians that still live, or some Christians that still live in Bethlehem. And so there are Christmas celebrations, big Christmas tree and Christian festivities, but not this year. This year, no Christmas tree in Manger Square in Bethlehem, no festivities, no public celebrations. It's just not deemed to be safe this year, and it's not deemed to be appropriate in view of all the violence and war that's going on, even though that's largely happening in Gaza. The West Bank is also affected by that, and so Bethlehem is a lot quieter this time of year than it would normally be. And it's a reminder to us, I think, two things. First of all, in the first instance, while you and I are going through all of our normal Christmas celebrations over the next week and having an enjoyable Christmas day, there are people in other parts of the world that are really going to struggle through this. And it's going to be a very, very different Christmas for people in uh, Israel and Palestine this year. And it's good to think particularly of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both Israeli and Palestinian, uh, who have a very, very difficult Christmas with loss and grief and pain, with war and violence erupting all around them. Second thing it reminds me is there's kind of this irony where what happens in Bethlehem is always affected by what's going on in the broader region. And that's true now, right? What's going on in this one city in Bethlehem is massively affected by what is going on more broadly in the Middle East. And strangely, that's exactly how it was 2,000 years ago. What went on in Bethlehem was affected by what was happening in the broader region and in the broader area. That event that happened in Bethlehem that night 2,000 years ago was an amazing event. Like in and of itself, the night that Jesus was born was incredible. But it was influenced and it happened against the backdrop of broader events, politically and geographically. And when you can see the birth of Jesus against some of that backdrop, and in the shadow of what was happening in the broader empire, the Roman Empire at the time, it helps us to understand what was going on. It helps us to understand a little more of who Jesus is and why he has come. So this is what I want to do this morning because I think this is what Luke is doing in this writing of the gospel story. I think he wants us to zoom in on the birth of Jesus and then he wants us to zoom out and look at the big picture a little bit more because sometimes the big picture makes sense of the little picture. So the way he starts is, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, who was Caesar Augustus? We've got a, a picture of him here, or it's a, it's a statue, a sculpture. And this was created, by the way, I think not long after Caesar died. So it is from this era. This is how Caesar Augustus was depicted. He was really the first emperor of the Roman Empire, as it existed as an empire. Before then, it was a republic, but as it transitioned through to becoming an empire, uh, Augustus was the first one who had sole reign, sole rule, sole charge of Rome as an empire. Now, let me, let me ask you this, a little bit of feedback, a little bit of audience participation. When you look at that picture, what are some of the words that come to mind for you? You think about Augustus. What are some of the words? Teenagers? Grapple kids? Adults? What do you think? Like, just immediately, what, what comes to your mind? What, what kind of image is being projected there? Rolling from Scotland to India, okay, yes, massive geographic expanse of his reign. Yep, what else? Other words? Authority, yep, great, Kim coming. And what was that? Announce, like a pro. I announce it, yes, I'm making a proclamation. Yeah, someone else? A dictator, yeah, very authoritarian. This is good, yeah, you can hear that, right? Any others? Words, connotations? 
I'll come back to you over here. Strength, Strength yes. Tyrannical, yeah. Yeah, you can hear all of those. There is this image of, and it's a very masculine strength as well, isn't it, that's being projected. Um, there is that, look at, his, look at the way his, his hand is posed there. It is, there is command, there is rule. He's got a bit of swagger going on there, doesn't he, Augustus? Uh, he was a military man. In fact, you probably can't see the detail, but on his, um, on his breastplate, all these depictions are all, all the battles that he had won to get to this point. He won battle after battle. That's how you became the emperor. You don't just get it. You don't just get voted in uh, like today. You've got you to win a lot of battles, and he had. And so Augustus was always very focused on the military. Uh, he had worked his way through the military to get to that point, and one of his major aims was to develop a huge, vast, strong military in Rome and subjugate every enemy territory so that nobody dared to rebel against the power of the Roman Empire. So this is, this is what a great man looked like in the first century. This is what great leadership looked like. This is what power and strength looked like. And this is the Caesar who was in charge when Jesus was born. Like, he's a real historical figure. Part of the reason Luke mentions him, I think, is just to show us that Jesus was born at a real point in history. So Caesar Augustus was an historical figure. We know this really happened. But I think there's this deeper theme that's going on where Luke is building a contrast between this guy, Caesar, and who Jesus is. And as you listen to the story, you'll pick that up. So the way Caesar becomes relevant to the story is because he issues a decree. And what was his decree? What had to be taken? A census. Good. I'm trying to keep you awake. So a census had to be taken. It was probably a little bit different to the census that you filled in this year. I don't think there was a question that said, how many times have you been lonely in the past four weeks? It wasn't that kind of census. They really just wanted to count people so they could tax people. That was the whole point. Uh, so that the government could get more and more and more money so they could build a bigger and bigger and bigger army uh, and more and more infrastructure. And so this was the whole point uh, of taking a census. And the rule was, the decree that went out, Everyone had to return to their hometown to be registered. And so you have this guy, Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary, and they have to travel to Bethlehem in order to be counted for this census. And here is where the contrast comes in between Augustus and Jesus. You have sitting in Rome this massively powerful dictator, sitting on his throne, issuing these kinds of decrees. And then, in a far-flung province of the empire, on the other side of the empire completely, you have the king of kings being born in the most dire and filthy and dirty of circumstances. You have Joseph and Mary in this almost ridiculous scenario of having to give, Mary has to give birth in just absolute squalor. Like it's hard for us to picture because we, we, we always sanitize the birth story of Jesus. Like we went and saw a movie yesterday, Journey to Bethlehem, and it's a bit of fun, but because it's for kids, it's always a very sanitized version of the birth story of Jesus. Whereas you think about like none of the things that we would associate with a good, healthy, safe birth were there. There's no midwives, there's no doctors, there's no medical professionals. This is basically in some kind of barn, maybe a cave. Most likely, this was the bottom level of someone's house, is, is most likely what was going on. A dugout area of someone's house 
where they keep animals. There's no flooring. It was just dirt on the floor. So in, in this kind of stable barn cave type setup, and the best they can find is just to get some hay together and have Jesus, this newborn baby, wrapped in some kind of cloths, lying on this, in this hay in an animal feeding trough. It is just scandalous that any child should ever be born in those kinds of conditions. And yet this is how Jesus, our Savior, was born. So in a few verses of Luke's gospel, what I want you to see is that there is this almighty contrast between, on the one hand, you have Caesar, opulence, luxury, power, prestige, might, strength. On the other hand, you have Jesus, born into weakness and vulnerability and lowliness and filth and weakness. And this is exactly the contrast that Luke wants us to hear. Tom Wright uh, puts it this way. He says, The point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this, this little boy, Jesus, is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness and insignificance and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. So those are the kingdoms that you are seeing. There's the kingdom of the world that's represented by Caesar. That's the kingdom of power and might and coercion and force and violence. And then you have the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is coming about in this way that is unbelievably weak. Through the birth of a child, not in a palace, not even in a normal home, but in these absolutely unclean and unsanitized conditions. But it is in that context that the Savior of the world comes about. The Savior of the world is born. And it reminds me of that verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says this. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's really exactly what's happening in the nativity story, isn't it? That God chose the weak things of the world. What could be more weak than a baby born in an animal feeding trough? And yet he chose this baby to shame and ultimately bring down the one who was in power, Augustus. Augustus is mentioned here as a footnote at the beginning of Luke 2, but he just drifts from the scene. He's not mentioned again. The people who are given real focus in the Christmas story, in the nativity story, in the Gospels, are people of no position and no status at all. And yet these are the ones that have a special place in God's plan. God uses the lowly things the, the Mary and Joseph, people without resource, people without money, people without any, any social capital, and yet he uses them in this powerful way within his redemptive story. God uses the foolish things. What could be more foolish than this child born in an obscure province of the Roman Empire claiming to be a king? But God uses the weak things, the foolish things, the lowly things, the things that are not to show us that his kingdom is not going to be attached to power and it's not going to be attached to money and it's not going to be attached to prestige and might and all of these things that we put so much emphasis in that his kingdom comes about in ways that are often humble and lowly and vulnerable and weak. And we still have today those two kingdoms, don't we? 
You can still see today the kingdom of the world and you can see the kingdom of God. And there is still a confrontation between those two kingdoms. There's still a lot of Caesar Augustus in the world today. There's still a lot of that kind of kingdom. There's a lot of people who obsess themselves with power and with status and with status symbols in their lives and with making as much money as they possibly can and with fame and prestige and recognition. And the rest of us show that we're part of that kingdom by obsessing ourselves over people like that because we think they are the great ones. We still obsess over people like Caesar Augustus in our culture today. We still look at people that have made it in life and think they are the great ones worth following. We look at billionaires and we think those are the people. Man, they've got it together. They have obviously, they know what they're doing. They are successful. They are the people we want to be like. We look at celebrities. We think these are the people that I want to be like. I want fame. I want recognition. I want that many followers on social media. I want, I want to be famous, even if it's just for being famous. I want to be famous. These are the people that we make the focus and the obsession and the fixation of our lives. But the nativity story reminds us that's not how God's kingdom comes. That's not the way in which God works. And those are not the things that God is interested in. God chooses the weak things of the world. That's what he did in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's what he's still doing today. He's choosing the weak things of the world, the lowly things, the despised things, the broken things, the small things, the foolish things, the out-of-the-way things and people. And that is still how his kingdom is coming about. I've been uh, reading this year a biography of Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a great preacher in the 19th century, 19th century London, and uh, Spurgeon, he, he's a well-known preacher, and in some ways he achieved that kind of recognition and success. But he achieved it in ways that were through huge weakness and huge difficulty. Early in his, in his preaching ministry, he was preaching in, a, in the Surrey Town Hall in London. There was a huge crowd there, and he was already getting some negativity in the press. People didn't like him. The media didn't like him because they thought he was too charismatic and too uh, flamboyant as a preacher. And so Spurgeon was preaching that night. And partway through his message, some people decided to play a prank, and someone stood up in the middle of this crowded hall, and they yelled out, fire! And you might think it was a joke, but people stood up, and you can imagine, in a, in a room where there were very few exits, there was a massive stampede of people to get to the door. Five or six people were killed in that, in that rush to the exit. And the press blamed that squarely on Spurgeon. They already had it in for him, and he was a convenient target to say, this is what happens when you have someone who's too much of a showman in the pulpit. And it launched Spurgeon into this massive depression and anxiety that he carried with him for the rest of his life. Never really got over it. It came and it went, but it was there for him and became a constant companion. Deep, deep struggle and mental anguish. And the thing that I have loved in reading about Spurgeon is the way that he would talk about his mental anguish. He didn't, in an age where this was not talked about and you didn't have language for these things and we didn't have all the vocabulary we now have around mental health, Spurgeon would talk about what he called soul trouble and he'd talk about his anguish of his soul and he'd talk about the, the, the trauma that he experienced on the inside and he'd preach about it and he'd talk to his congregation about it and he'd write about it. And it's so hugely refreshing because I think the greatness of Spurgeon to me is not just the great sermons that he preached, but the way in which he would have ministered to people in his congregation who were struggling with depression and anxiety and self-loathing and all kinds of other mental illnesses, and they would have felt ministered to him in a way that they would have felt by no one else. 
because of his willingness to speak into those things. Spurgeon carried that weakness in his life. As well as that, he had massive physical ailments. He had kidney inflammation. He had gout. He had rheumatoid arthritis. He had nerve pain. And yet he pressed on faithfully in his ministry. For me, he's a picture of someone who ministered in weakness and spoke in weakness and tried to be as faithful as he could. And God turned his weakness into strength, sometimes in ways that were seen, sometimes in ways that were obvious, but sometimes in ways that weren't seen at all. Your story will be really different, but I want to encourage you to think, what does it mean in your own life for God to use the weak things and the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are? This is what God has been doing all through history, is bypassing the great and the powerful and the prestigious and the rich. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but God works through weakness and lowliness. What are the things in your life that you might think are weakness? that maybe God's wanting to use. Maybe areas in your life that you see as limitations that God's wanting to put his finger on and say, I can work through that if you just be faithful to me. Struggles that you have, difficulties, things, those thorns in the flesh that you just wish weren't there. Maybe rather than seeing them as hindrances and as things that are outside of God's purposes, see those maybe as the very point where God might meet you by his grace and might bestow blessing upon you and might use you. Maybe not in ways that the world would look at and say are great, but in ways that will be great in the story of his kingdom. Let me carry on and point out one other way in which the kingdom of Jesus is different to the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Augustus that we see in Luke chapter 2. Fast forward in the story a little bit, we get to the shepherds. Uh, in verse 8, shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Now, when these shepherds encountered the presence of an angel, first of all, one angel and then a whole company of angel, angels glorifying God, here is what the angel initially says to them, verse 10. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, let me just... To help you see the contrast here between what's being said about Jesus here and what was said about Caesar Augustus, because there's a really deliberate thing going on here. Uh, I think in the next slide, I've got this inscription that was written about Caesar. Now, this is written in 9 BC, so only about five or six years before Jesus was born. And here is what someone wrote about Caesar. Since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as a saviour, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. And on it goes. Isn't that interesting? You don't even have to be a Bible geek to be fascinated by this stuff. Let me just talk you through the language there. Sending him as a saviour. It's the Greek word soter, exactly the same word that's used of Jesus. As a saviour, that he might end war. It's the same concept as peace. I'll talk about that in a minute. Since the birthday, so this is talking about the birth of Augustus. And what did his birth signify? The beginning of the good news. That's euangelion, exactly the same word used in the New Testament for gospel. The gospel. So the way in which Caesar Augustus was talked about in the ancient world is that he was the savior. And his birth was the beginning of good news and peace on earth. 
that's how it was thought about. In fact, that idea of peace was incredibly important uh, in Caesar's reign. It was often called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And this is one of the major accomplishments that Caesar undertook, was to bring this era of peace and stability to the Roman Empire. And he kind of unified the empire in a particular way that it hadn't been united before. He built roads and developed a postal system and all sorts of things that brought these territories together. And it was an era of relative peace. But when you look under the surface, the reason that it was peaceful is because it was peace at the end of a sword. Because it was the kind of peace that said, I'll have peace if I have to kill every last one of you. That any, any dissent, any rebellion against Rome was not tolerated at all. So it was a peace that came through violence and through the subjugation of people like the Jews, who were an occupied people at the time. So when you listen to this inscription to Caesar, you can hear some of what Luke is saying, that this guy in Rome claiming to be the true Lord of the world is not the Lord at all. Caesar is not the Lord. He is not a God. He is just a man. And his birthday is not the birth of the true gospel. There is another king born in Bethlehem who brings the true gospel, the true good news into the world. And it's not Caesar who is going to bring peace, real peace, real lasting peace on earth. It is going to be Jesus. That's why in verse 14, the angels say, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That word peace is based on the much older Hebrew word shalom. And it's a beautiful word. It doesn't just mean peace in your heart. Often that's what we think like peace. I have this nice feeling of peace. Shalom is a much broader word than that. In its fullest sense, it means to put broken things back together. It has that sense of wholeness, that you're taking what has been broken, what's fragmented, and putting it back together. So at a personal level, that means taking the broken pieces of our lives and putting them back together. This is what Jesus has done. He takes the broken parts of our lives. He takes our brokenness before God. He takes our sinful lives, and he puts them back together. We become reconciled to God. And then at a personal level, Jesus brings about reconciliation between people. That's why Ephesians says he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Between Jew and Gentile, the gospel brings about reconciliation on this human level, not just on the vertical level. We are reconciled to one another, and we now walk out the way of Jesus through practicing that reconciliation, practicing love, practicing forgiveness, practicing patience, practicing gentleness with one another. And then ultimately, the real, true, full shalom that God is going to bring about will be revealed on the day that Jesus returns. And then his shalom will cover the earth. And it's that picture that we have in the Bible of a world where there is no more pain, no mourning, no crying. All that is passed away. All things are made new. Peace covers the earth. All human relationships restored with God and with self and with one another and even with creation. Everything flourishing as it should. I love the, uh, the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. And I remember singing it in Bethlehem on one of, the, one of the trips that we had there. And we sat around, our group sat around in the church of the Shepherd's Field, which is just outside of Bethlehem. And it's a beautiful church. It's circular. And you can see the, the, the sunlight pouring in in a particular way. And we sat there singing together, O Holy Night, as the words and the musical notes bounced around the room. 
And that second verse I found so powerful as we sung that together. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is a brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's shalom. It's a picture of the shalom that Jesus will one day bring about. And that's going to be a reality in the new heavens and the new earth. That's how big shalom goes. It's, even though that seems so far from where our world is right now, that's the vision, that's the hope of shalom. And so this is who Jesus is, the God of peace, the one who has come to bring true peace on the earth. <clears throat> and for us, the invitation is to think about what does that peace look like in our lives now? What does it mean to pursue shalom here and now in the present with Jesus? What does God's peace look like in our own lives? What over the next week and a bit leading up to Christmas Day might it mean to be people of shalom? Because just as God brought peace on earth that night in Bethlehem, he's still bringing peace on earth today. Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests, to those on whom his grace rests. And he invites us to be people of shalom for you, that may be an invitation into peace with God. It may be that the, the broken pieces of your lives have never been put back into relationship with God. That's the invitation for you this Christmas. If you've never stepped into that relationship with Jesus, or if you've just kind of wandered away from him, and it's just been a long time and you're kind of nowhere in your faith and you've just left him a long way behind, the invitation for you as we journey through the Advent season is to come back into the shalom of God, the peace of God. That invitation is always there. The Father's arms are always open. This is why Jesus came. This is why he lived and died and was raised again, so that you could know peace with God. And it really doesn't matter how long it's been, <clears throat> how far you've wandered, how many times you've drifted back to the same old habits. God is here, and he loves you, and his peace is available for you today. It may be, that the peace God's calling you to pursue is peace with someone else. And it may be that there's someone that you've got a relationship with that's become pretty frosty. It's kind of iced over in recent times. And God's just gently nudging you. Even as we talk about peace on earth, <clears throat> you know if the Spirit's prompting you and maybe there's just that sense of, yeah, it's time for that ice to thaw. And maybe there's a step for you to take. Maybe there's someone you haven't communicated with for a long, long time. And I know it's easy for you to say, well, they haven't picked up the phone to me either. They haven't texted, and they could easily, and they could do this, and why don't they? But why don't you? Why don't you be the one to take a first step? No, thanks, Pete. Could you be the one that sends a text this week, looks them up for a coffee, maybe sends a card, takes the first step to thaw the ice? That can be a small little step of shalom that you could take sometime in the next week. So we have this picture <clears throat> around the birth of Jesus of these two kingdoms. And this is the picture that Luke is painting. The picture of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. 2,000 years ago, it was Caesar and it was Jesus, this striking contrast between what the kingdom of the world looked like and what the kingdom of God truly looks like. But those two kingdoms are just as present here and now, just as present today. And so we all face that choice. Are we going to live our lives 
facing toward the kingdom of the world. And by the way, you can do that even as a Christian. You can claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet live your life totally facing all the values and the priorities of the kingdom of the world. Are we going to live that way? Are we going to orientate our lives that way? Are we going to seek after those Caesar Augustus type things? Or are we going to live our lives facing the kingdom of God and accept that sometimes that is going to mean weakness? Sometimes that's going to mean humility. Sometimes it's going to mean the things that are not rather than the things that are. Sometimes it's going to mean the foolish things instead of the wise things. Sometimes it's going to mean accepting the shame rather than the honor. Sometimes the weakness rather than the strength. But that is the nature of our gospel because it is a gospel of death and resurrection, of dying and rising, of honor in the midst of shame and of strength in the midst of weakness. So may we be encouraged by that incredible event that happened of the birth of Jesus, that God is still using the weak things of this world, and Jesus is still moving in ways that are often unseen, and is still bringing his peace on earth today, and is looking for those that will be open to that peace, embracing of his peace, and be conduits of his peace in a broken and a fallen and often hostile world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that in you we see the kingdom of God coming. And in your birth we see, we get this glimpse into what the kingdom of God really looks like. And God, even though it's such a familiar story, I pray there would be something about the way in which you came into this world that would just catch our hearts this Christmas and remind us of who you are. God, those times that our hearts, even now, just so easily are led astray and led towards attaching ourselves to things and to people and to stuff that just are not what you want for us. Lord God, help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus, your kingdom, your power, your glory, even though it looks very different to the ways of this world. God, we pray over this next week and all the, the busyness that lies ahead, in the tiredness, <clears throat> in the schedules that we've got ahead of us, we pray that you would help us to free time and space in our hearts to turn to you to focus ourselves upon you, Jesus, and to allow the reality of your presence and your life and your peace and your strength to flood into our hearts and out through our lives into the lives of others around us so that we might be your kingdom people. Not just this Christmas, but all the days of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.